Hello, and welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, November 25th, 2018, we're continuing our series titled Knowing Truth, The Letters of John. In today's sermon, The Love Story Portrait, will be taught to us by Pastor Mark Yule from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. We hope you enjoy. In a world of disagreements, large and small, I don't believe that you exist. Go think whatever you want. Go ahead. How can a good and powerful God allow innocent people to suffer unspeakable tragedies? But then there's all these questions, you know, about ethics and moral issues as well. And I would say, well, they're crazy for not testing what they think they believe. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not real. It's as real as what you see. And, and I begin with the assumption that God is love. And love is love is love is love. I think that the orthodox, historic Christian tradition is this vast, diverse conversation that's been going on for thousands of years. I was telling our staff folks earlier this last week in a meeting that we had that this passage in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12, could be the most significant of all of the passages within the Bible, let alone 1 John. And I got some, oh, come on, prove it to me looks from the staff. Well, let me see if I could prove it to you. This short little passage solves several very deep dilemmas for us. For example, what we, we all know that God is love, right? Took a survey, 99.9 of us would say, yes, God is love. But what does that really mean? What does it mean that God is love? And what do you do with all of the other passages in the Bible that also talk about God's anger and his wrath and his judgment? How do you balance those out? What do you do when God says that God is spirit and no one can see God because he's so holy and pure that no one can ever see him? How do we make that God visible? That's a dilemma. And because God is so holy, so righteous, and so pure, what does he do with a people like you and me that are far from righteous and holy and pure? What do we do with that? This passage addresses that. And of all the passages in the scriptures, wouldn't it be just like God to have on his calendar that we would be covering this passage, which so perfectly fits between a Thanksgiving and a Christmas season? We're not that smart to figure this out, but God knew exactly what passage we'd need this morning. It's a very significant passage, primarily for this one bottom line reason, because the passage that we're going to take a look at this morning will allow us to see the depth of God's love, hopefully in a way that you've never seen it before. And to that, I'd like to pray that God would be doing his work. So would you join me as we pray together? Father, thank you for the privilege that we all have to come and to be able to sing the praise that's due your name. And Father, as you inspired John to write each of these words, Father, I pray that your same Holy Spirit would invade our lives and minds so that you could illuminate each of the words that will be before us this morning. God, so that we would understand them. For some, perhaps for the first time, but for many, God, I pray that these words would sink deep so that we could just do nothing more, nothing better than to see how much you love us. So, Father, again, we would ask that you would be the teacher. 
for all for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, to kind of give a little levity and fun to the introduction of the sermon, I thought I would rewind the clock back to 1970. I had just received my driver's license, and we'll leave it up to you to do the math on that, but I had just received my driver's license. I had called my girlfriend, Judy, on that long corded phone so that my sisters couldn't hear and asked her for a date. So I splash on the high karate cologne, (laughs) fire up my mom's dark green Ford Maverick, and drive four blocks to pick up Judy Woods for our first official date. We drive about another half mile down to the Christown Movie Theater. I buy popcorn and a Coke to share. We sit down. I think she took my hand. The lights dimmed, and then all of a sudden, we were about to watch the world's perfect first date movie. All right, that's enough of Annie Williams. Excuse me for, for using such an antiquated example of that, but I thought that particular song and that first, that first verse really paints the story of what John's trying to do in these, in these six verses from 1 John 4. John is going to try to paint the story of how much God loves us. So I'd like to change the lyrics of that last line to, the, to, to these words. If you could put this up on this... The simple truth about the love that God sent to you and me. That's what we want to understand today. That simple and yet profound truth that God loves us. This sermon is all about the portrait of the love story of all time. This is the, capital the, emphasis on the, the love story. And John's going to try to paint this love story First of all, so where do we start? How do we begin to tell this story? Well, let's start off with the paint. The paint of this portrait is God's love. God's essence is love. We're going to see John take his paintbrush, and again, through the the inspiration of God's Spirit, will cause John to dip not once, not twice, not 10 times, not 13 times, but 15 times in those first six verses and paint the word or some form of the word love. You think John's trying to make a point in this? The essence of God is his love. Look at how he expresses this, starting in verses 7 through 8. Beloved, that's you and me. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Briefly, again, real quickly, we go through these verses and we see John again commend that we should and ought to love one another. We're not commanded to, but he says this is something that we should do. Love is sourced from God. It it springs from God. And whoever loves has been born of God, as we've already seen throughout this letter. When we love like God loves, it's as if we bear the the God birthmark. We show that we've been birthed of God. And not only that, but that we know him. Not intellectually, that we could repeat a bunch of facts about God or that we would know things about him. When John speaks of knowing God, he speaks of knowing him in an experiential, 
personal, relevant, sincere way. That's the love that's demonstrated when God knows us and then when we love in return. And then John flips it negatively in verse 8. He provides the simple yet most profound explanatory statement in all of Scripture. Anyone who does not love does not know God, and here's why, because God is love. God is love. It's that simple. This is one of three grand God is statements that the Apostle John makes. Back in his gospel, in chapter 4, verse 24, he would say that God is spirit. Earlier in 1 John, we we read that, uh, that God is light, and here it says that God is love. What is that? Well, when we say the essence of God is love, it means that everything that God does in his thoughts, in his actions, in his sovereign uh, orchestration of the entire world for all time, everything that God does is expressed in love. And this word love is a very special word. It's the word agape, or again, some form of it within 1 John. It's the highest form of love. John would have to pull a word out that would be different than the world's way that we love each other brotherly or uh, romantically. This type of agape love is the supreme love. When, when John uses this word, he's saying that we are to love just like God loves us. 100% selfless love. Agape love is, is, is not only that, it seeks the best in others. 100% percent of the time. God's agape love is sacrificial, it's unconditional, and it's beyond measure generous. God's agape love initiates, it loves first. God's agape love endures, it loves long. And as we sang, it never ends, it never fails, it will always endure. That's the kind of love of which John speaks. So again, I think of pictures, and so I was trying to picture what would this look like tangibly, and I came close to seeing a picture of that kind of love. Several days ago, I had a chance to go do a hospital visit to Mayo Hospital over here, and there was a gentleman there in an intensive unit that was taking care of his wife who had had a stroke. They'd been married probably over 50 years. He'd been loving on her for a long time. She's in a wheelchair and needs additional care. And as he was telling me the details of this last stroke incident, he called me alongside her bedside. And there he was telling me what happened and the details of the accident. And you could just tell as he spoke, here was a man that just loves his wife like crazy. Her... She's unable to move all but her head, and her unexpressive eyes move from looking blankly at me, and they move over to looking at her husband. And you could almost see those unexpressive eyes change. And especially as, as the husband wipes away the hair from his wife's forehead that was still scarred and scabbed up, and he said, this is my sweetheart. And you could tell this guy loves his wife. In a human way, that's agape love. 
But I think if John were observing even that very powerful scene, he would say that's not enough to paint the full portrait of how much God loves us. So he moves, let's move from the paint to the the backdrop, the background picture, because John paints a picture that would paint what God, how God loves us even clearer. The, The best background is the revelation of Jesus Christ himself. It's the best revelation, and we see this in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. The key phrase, I believe, in that short verse is the the two-word phrase, made manifest. It means to be clearly seen, to bring something into light so it can be publicly viewed and, and clearly held up. And when John thinks of the best way to paint God's picture of love, he's saying that this picture of Jesus coming to earth is the best way to picture this. And it's really this particular verse is why this is the perfect verse to bridge us from thanksgiving over to what we celebrate for Christmas because it's the incarnation of Christ, Christ coming in the flesh that John's writing about. Listen to how some other writers put it. I've got Hebrews 1, uh, verses 1 through 3, uh, hopefully up on the screen for us here. The writer of Hebrews would write this long ago. At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but... In contrast to those other ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us. And the way that that word is phrased, it talks about the the perfect spokenness, the final expression. There can't be any better way, any more perfect way, any more final way than God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom... Also, he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint or image of his nature. And he upholds not just the earth, but he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Folks, that's what Jesus did when he came to earth. And John would express that in his gospel. In John 1.14, John would write these words, And the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. The, the message paraphrase had, Jesus came to earth and lived in our neighborhood as a way of expressing this. He dwelt among us. And John says, We have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In 1 John, that's what John's trying to communicate. We see, we see God. We see the love of God in Jesus coming to the earth. And the world desperately needs this tangible example so that we can fully understand the love that God has for us. 
The story is told of a World War II soldier in Germany that uh, after a, a hard battle um, in, in which his particular group of soldiers, they lost several casualties, he's making his way down into this German town. And the German town has been previously just wiped out, bombed by Allied bombers. But there's a couple buildings that are left unscathed. And as he comes into this town, one of those buildings is a bakery. And this bakery has a plate glass window and there's an orphan that has his nose pressed up against the glass of that, of that uh, bakery. And the soldier knows this orphan's need. So he goes into the bakery, buys a bag of pastries and comes out and gives it to the orphan. The orphan looks over at the soldier and says, Sir, are you God? You see, there's that essence where we need to be able to put our hands and, and, and be able to touch God. And that's what Jesus did when he came on the earth. Not only just to show us God, but even to do something as equally important as that. John would write, he came that we might be able to live through him. Live through him. Have life through him. John would perhaps remember Jesus' words when he said back in John 10.10, Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Life to the full. Not just eternal life, that is enough, but life abundant even on this world. That's why Jesus came. He came to make that type of life abundant and manifest and that's the story that, that John is trying to paint with this portrait of love. But even that portrait is not enough. John needs to make sure that we can focus right in on the central thing that's the focal point and the best picture of all of the love that God has for us. And so the focal point is God's only solution is right there on the cross. And we'll see that in verse 10. You see, to fully see the extent of God's love, we need to take a look very closely at this, this focal point. And we need to understand what's wrapped up in this unusual word in verse 10. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What is propitiation? Well, it involves God's wrath and God's anger and his just judgment. You're thinking, well, Mark, what, none of that is in here. Well, it is. It's all wrapped up within this special word propitiation. So, for example, let me, let me see if I could give you a, 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 just a definition of what this word is, and then we'll, we'll talk a little bit further about this anger and wrath. Propitiation is some of your translations, if you have the NIV, it might be atoning sacrifice. It's the object which receives and fully satisfies God's wrath and his anger and is justly directed at sin. That's what propitiation is. And if we're painting a love story, we've got to paint in equal measure God's love mixed with God's wrath and his anger. 
And yet the church hardly ever talks about God's anger and his wrath. In in fact, J.I. Packer, who's a, a great theologian, probably back in the early 60s wrote this. To an age which has unashamedly sold itself to the gods of greed, pride, sex, and self-will, the church mumbles on about God's kindness and love, but says virtually nothing about his wrath, anger, or judgment. The fact is that the subject of divine wrath has been become taboo in modern society, and Christians, by and large, have accepted this taboo and conditioned themselves never to raise the matter. And isn't that true? When was the last time you heard a song talking about God's wrath or his anger? And yet the reality is that his wrath and anger is every bit of much of his essence as God's love is. In fact, if you have a concordance that, that looks up verses of the Bible and looks by, by key word, you'll find that there are more verses in the Bible about God's wrath, God's anger and judgment, than there are about God's love. Just to give you a couple instances, back in Deuteronomy, I was reading in Deuteronomy in chapter 9, Moses is giving a, a, a reminder for the people of Israel before they're ready to take over the promised land again. And he's reminding them of, of some of the things that they did. And one of the things they did was kind of forget about God. They exercised their own self-will and and went after uh, worshiping a golden calf. And as Moses is recalling this incident in chapter 9, about six times he uses, God was angry. God was angry about this. You provoked God's wrath. And in one of the translations, he says that you uh, provoked God's hot displeasure. We would say it this way, you made God boiling mad. And that's what our sin does. That's what my sin does. That's what your sin does. However great or small, our sin makes God angry. And that sin deserves his wrath. And although we hate to say it, and although it's seldom mentioned in the pulpit, it deserves his just punishment. And it's not just an Old Testament concept. As we flip the pages over to Romans 1, it would say this in Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God, that's the same wrath, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And in Romans 3.23, man, if you're, if you're a Bible marker, Mark this passage, Romans 3, 23 through 26. For all have sinned. That's each and every one of us. Jew, Gentile, every one of us have sinned. And we fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared innocent, by his grace as a gift. That's something that we have to work for. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward, here's our word, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Do you understand propitiation? 
Do you understand that focal point on the cross where Jesus willingly accepts the punishment, accepts the wrath, takes on God's anger for all of our sin? 2 Corinthians 5.21 talks about the great exchange. Paul would write these words, For our sake he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, his son, to be sin, who knew no sin. Why? So that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. He did that because Jesus was the propitiation for our sins. Can I take you back to that earlier story that I told about the soldier? My guess would be, as I told that, that, that you were thinking when I said orphan, that, that that orphan was probably, what, six, eight, certainly below ten. How many had that age in mind? Just to, yeah, that's what I was thinking, okay? Let's say instead of eight, that that, so, that, that, that orphan was 18. And let's say that instead of civilian tattered clothes, let's put a German uniform on that orphan, a Nazi uniform. And let's have him holding on to a, a sniper rifle whose barrel is still red hot because he was the sniper that had just taken out this soldier's friends. And in a moment of justified wrath and anger, the sergeant from that platoon takes his gun, aims it at that orphan to pull the trigger. But also right at that moment, intentionally, purposefully, and lovingly, that soldier steps in to take the bullet that was due for that, soldier, that orphan. Friends, that sniper, that orphan, that one who deserved the bullet, that's you and me. We are all unrighteous. And all of us deserve the wrath and anger that God has towards sin. And yet the love of God would be so great that he would step in intentionally, purposefully, and lovingly and receive that as a propitiation for our sin. The love can't understand that kind of world or that kind of love. And yet this morning, we get to sing about it. The cross was enough. Yeah, amen. But the picture really isn't done. John, as he doesn't do so often, sets this thing up in a very organized way. He, start, or he starts and then he ends with this commendation that we would love one another. Look at how he comes full circle in verses 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Verse 11, that little word if, there's several ways that you could translate it. Perhaps it's better translated, translated since God so loved us this way. We are under obligation to love one another. 
Love should be our response. And in verse 12, if we love one another, let's word that when. When we love one another, then God abides in us. He dwells with us. He makes himself at home in our, li- in, in our hearts. God abides in us. And at that time when we can love others God's way, love reaches its full and perfect ending point. Love is fully expressed when we can love others as God loved us. When we're dwelt with God and love his way by loving others, that's when love is perfected. So husbands, when Paul would write, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, that's love perfected. When we offer forgiveness to the one who has hurt us deeply and keeps on hurting us repeatedly, and we're told to forgive as Christ forgave us, that's love perfected. When a small group would adopt a single mom and her family for Christmas and overwhelmingly just bless them beyond measure, knowing that they'll never, she'll never pay them back, that's perfect love. When a young professional takes on one of our students and disciples them and shows them how to walk with God, that's perfect love. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. For the perfect focal point of all time was when God's perfect love met God's perfect anger right there on the cross. And this morning, as God's timing would be, we get a chance to be able to celebrate that through communion. So if you're going to be serving us the elements, can I dismiss you right now to to do so? As we do when we take communion here at Highlands, we're going to be served one cup. It has both elements in there. Grab that. We're going to be able to take that together when everyone has been served. But for now, let's use this time even to express our thankfulness for that which Jesus has done by loving us so much. How do you paint a portrait of God's love? You have to do it all around the cross. You mix in a whole bunch of God's love. You paint a picture of Jesus who came to earth so that we could see what love would look like in person. And you paint it, you have to paint that portrait of love with Jesus on the cross, accepting the punishment and the wrath and the anger that was due for your sin and mine. That's what we celebrate. So as we do with the elements as Jesus commanded us, Let's do this in remembrance of what he did for us. And as both John and Paul would write in their letters, this juice represents the blood that would be spilled on the cross. 
and by placing our faith through grace in this blood, we're made righteous. Not through taking this, but what Christ did on the cross for us. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of what Jesus did for us. Father, we give you thanks for what you did on the cross on our behalf. Father, it shows us more than anything could how much you love us. Father, help us respond. Help us respond by thanking you even now and loving others as you've commanded. Father, help us continue to worship you this way. Beloved, all you his saints, may we grasp what is the power and the strength and what is the height and the breadth and the depth of God's love And may we then in turn love one another just as God loved us. God bless you.